This week, we're looking at an update on the Iranian nuclear deal. Japan ratifies the Trans-Pacific Partnership deal. Mexican landslide election results. And a deeper dive on the impact of geography on international relations. Welcome to the Envoy podcast for the 20th of July. I'm your host, Nathan Shaw. Now to this week's roundup. First is an update on the Iranian nuclear deal, where we've talked about this subject in the past and how the Iranians would probably be able to survive working with the Europeans, even though the US had pulled out of the deal. Um, There's been a new development that really changes things. Unlike before, when maybe US companies would be sanctioned and not allowed to work with Iran, but European companies could come in and Iran could shift its economy towards Europe and still prosper and make the deal viable. The US has announced that it is going to apply Uh, secondary sanctions on EU-based firms. This means any European firm located in the US or trying to work with the US or through the US dollar uh, would come under sanctions effectively if they tried to work with Iran and break the US sanctions. This kind of secondary sanction had seemed unlikely, but with the ramping up of tariffs against Europe and the breakdown of talks between the two powers, there hasn't been much reason for the US not to engage in secondary sanctions. And so... All these companies from the EU that had initially invested in Iran will probably have to just ride off those losses and just pull out of the Iranian economy because the U.S. economy is just so important probably to most of their business models that they couldn't possibly risk losing that. And this is why the U.S. has so much power on the world stage. It controls the world's reserve currency and has a massive economy which has wide-ranging links. That mean a lot of other companies require it as a, as a consumer base and consumer market that they want to be able to sell to. And in the face of uh, the Iranian economy, the American economy is just so far more important that America can use that leverage to mean that those companies will stay out of Iran and effectively punishing Iran, even though the EU was quite happy to work with Iran. We'll keep you updated with any new developments on this front. Now onto Japan, which has formally lodged a notification that has completed the domestic procedures of the Trans-Pacific Partnership 11 Agreement, which is If you recall, the Trans-Pacific Partnership was this kind of wide-ranging free trade agreement between the U.S., uh, Canada, Mexico, Japan, Australia, and and several Asian and Southeast Asian countries. However, after the U.S. pulled out of this agreement under President Trump, the agreement was renamed to the Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership. This partnership has been ratified by Japan and New Zealand. And when enough time and or other countries have joined into the ratification process, it will come into force. This is important because it's a countervailing force to this increase in protectionism that we've seen around the world. And though it's not all going the way of trade wars and increased protectionism and the like, there are some forces like this and the RCEP, which is the Chinese-led model of a similar type, that are trying to push against this protectionism movement that we've seen around the world. But... It seems unlikely that the U.S. will rejoin this partnership without some kind of concessions from the rest of the members. Now to Mexican elections, where Lopez Obrador has won 31 out of 32 electoral states through the the first-past-the-post system in Mexico. This is the most states won by candidate since 1994. His party, Morena, was founded as a political party in 2014 and holds the largest share of Senate and chamber seats in its coalition, uh, which consists of uh, Morena, which is left-leaning, a Labour Party, also left-leaning, and the Social and Counter Party, which is a right-wing evangelical Christian party. This coalition is named Together We Will Make History. 
It's effectively a left-leaning alliance with aspects of what they call big tent positions. The idea of trying to bring in a wide-ranging base of support, usually based around the center of any political spectrum. Lopez Obrador is a left-leaning politician who has campaigned heavily on fighting corruption and inequality in the country, as well as a different take on the war on drugs. Drug cartels have a huge impact on the Mexican economy and the crime rate. But just in terms of violence, they help contribute to the 25,000 people murdered in 2017 in the country. This election also saw a record high number of politicians being murdered, with 48 candidates for election being killed. Lopez Obrador's critique of the war on drugs with the military and police trying to crack down and take out leaders is that as cartel bosses are removed, the resulting groups are left with a power vacuum and they splinter and fight, further inciting more violence. However, the new president will have to wait until the 1st of December for his inauguration. And perhaps the most important from a foreign policy perspective is the relationship between Mexico and the U.S., during the campaigning for election, Lopez Obrador ran a very anti-Trump position, which is very popular with Mexicans as President Trump is seen as anti-Mexican. And thus, it was easy to provide a very populist position as uh, opposing Trump. However, it seems since the election that Obrador is perhaps taking a more conciliatory tone towards America, and particularly Trump. This is most likely due to the fact that over 80% of Mexican exports are to the USA. This December 1st inauguration means that Obrador has about six months to try and prepare all his policies for being enacted, as well as preparing how he's going to deal with President Trump and the US. That's it for this week's roundup. Now onto this week's deeper dive. This week we're discussing geographical determinism, or the idea of how geography impacts international relations and how states form based on what kind of geography they possess. So when we think about geography and international relations, at the most fundamental level, if you think back to the very first podcast, international relations is basically a, a game of power. And so different nations have different power, and they use that to try and push and pull the system and influence others so that they can achieve their goals, primarily being survival, but then other goals beyond that. So we have to say, well, how does geography interact with power? How does it give you power? Well, fundamentally, you might say, well, the military of a nation, at the very least, what we could say is clearly a, an aspect of power. But how do you get a military? Well, it costs money to build a military. So fundamentally, the military is derived from the economy in many instances. And so if it's derived from the economy, you say, what is the economy derived from? In many cases, for most great powers, it's derived from their geography. And so the basis of the large modern states we see today come from historical backgrounds of geography, usually associated with large arable land areas, uh, particularly if they're overlaid with river systems. And there's two reasons for this. First up is good arable land makes it easy to raise up enough crops to support a larger population, allow economies of scales to start build as people are no longer needed to work the fields. They can become politicians or professors or business leaders and in industry builders. And the more fertile and productive your land is, the less people are needed to work it. Secondly, is the idea of river systems. And the reason why rivers are important is twofold. One, obviously, arable land likes to have irrigation, water supplies, it's very useful in that regard. But there's also a second reason, that's transport. Moving things via planes is very expensive. Moving things around by trucks is still pretty expensive. Trains are a little bit better, but generally the best way to transport things in terms of the cheapest way is floating them. 
it reduces the cost significantly. And if you take into account things like the infrastructure and set up costs for things like train lines and roads, floating goods can be up to 12 times cheaper in terms of transportation costs than other types of methods. And so if you have a large set of arable land with rivers that are navigable and you can move goods down, it gives you an enormous advantage over another state that has relatively little arable land and no rivers to quickly move their goods around. And so this is evident in Europe, where major nations like France and Germany uh, are situated on an area called the European Plain. And this is good arable land often overlaid by rivers, places like the Rhine, the Oder. And these allow economies of scale, uh, lots of food to be produced. And so in a climate where the winters are cold enough to kill pests, but it's warm enough otherwise to grow crops quite productively. And once they're grown, you can put them on a barge and float them down the river. It's very cheap, very effective. And this gives countries and areas a real advantage in trying to get ahead and creating a powerful economy. Even places like the United Kingdom, in particular uh, the area of Wales and England, there's good arable land, same as in, in southern Sweden. There's enough of a basis there to build a decent state. Let's contrast it with somewhere else. It is a powerful nation to some degree and has a powerful agricultural sector, but has a few geographical barriers that prevent it from becoming really powerful and having the same advantage other states in Europe or the US may have. Now, the country I'm referring to is Brazil, which was the third largest exporter of agricultural goods in 2010, behind only the US and the EU. It should be noted that China and India are also major agricultural producers, but they use these goods internally to support their own large populations rather than exporting it abroad. Brazil is a powerful economy and is an agricultural powerhouse when it comes to soybeans, but has several mitigating factors that hold it back. The number one problem is something called the Grand Escarpment, which portions off the populous southeastern coastal cities from the interior of the country. So these are places like Vitoria, Santo, Rio de Janeiro, these cities sit in small enclaves where they can't merge and gain economies of scale like you can see in, say, Europe. And you want to visualize this. Think of the Brazilian cities you've seen with major kind of cliff faces behind them and major impediments to easy flow of goods that would be running from the interior of the country to the, the seaports. Due to its climate, Brazil focuses on soybeans, coffee, and sugarcane. These are plantation crops that often rely on low-skilled labor, um, and they're crops that are harder to mechanize due to their location into the interior of the country, uh, particularly in regards if you're trying to selectively pick ripe coffee cherries. However, Brazil has been mechanizing over time. There's been a slow shift as it's progressed. However, even if the country's agricultural goods become fully mechanized, there's still the problem of transportation, as other than the San Francisco River, most navigable streams flow into the central basin rather than the coast. Thus, populous cities in the southeast have difficulty bringing goods from the interior out to them. Instead of floating the goods down a river or transporting on a train, you have to pack your goods into a tiny truck and send it to market through windy mountainous paths. It's not efficient and it's not cheap, greatly increasing the price of their goods. Truck traffic during harvest season is miles long, with lines unloading at Brazilian ports hitting a record 15 miles in 2013. Finally, the climate. Other than some areas in the south, the further inland and north you get, the more you're running into rainforest and jungle. Trying to turn a rainforest into farmland is an intensive process that involves burning or chopping down large numbers of trees in very arduous conditions. 
It also means you might need a lot of herbicides and pesticides to protect the crops from local fauna and fauna. And so when you're not working with that ideal northern European plain type area, you have lots of other little problems you need to deal with, such as in Cerrado, the high acidity in the soil means you need to bring in lots and lots of lime to bring it back to a more neutral level that crops will accept. So you can see through all these factors that geography really holds Brazil back as its cities can't grow to engaging economies of scale on the coast and it separates the coastal cities from the interior, making transport to market really, really difficult and really, really expensive. This limits your economic potential and ability to generate capital, which then means Brazil becomes more reliant on international capital to try and provide it that input it needs to help bring the economy up to speed, although that has inflationary effects as well. So if Brazil is held back by its geography, let's have a look at another nation that has been really uplifted by the significant benefits of its natural geography. And this is, of course, the United States of America. The greater Midwest area, which is effectively the area between the eastern seaboard states where New York, Philadelphia, and Miami are, and the Rocky Mountains to the west, uh, which beyond those mountains is the western seaboard where you'll see Los Angeles, Seattle, and San Francisco. This area in the middle, known as the greater Midwest, has the single largest area of arable land on the planet. The US not only has this amazing area of arable land, it also has overlaying this the greater Mississippi River system. It's a major reason why the US has more miles of waterways internally over usable land than the entirety of the world combined. Brazil has the Amazon River system, but it's in the Amazon rainforest and it drains away towards the north instead of towards the political and economic center of the country that is in the south and southeast. Instead, in the US, the greater Mississippi drains through the country into the Caribbean, giving it an excellent position to export its goods elsewhere. This means that the US has a huge advantage in agricultural production and helps provide some of the answers to why America has become an economic superpower. In addition, large sections of its consumer base is integrated with its production zones as it's easy for people in the interior to provide goods to the populous eastern seaboard and down through Texas as well. And when you have this great economic power, you can then use it to your advantage to increase the connectivity within your country. The USA had the Lincoln Highway, which was one of the earliest transcontinental highways across the USA in 1913. In addition, the US created the Federal Aid Highway Act of 1956 under President Dwight D. Eisenhower. It was the largest public works project in American history through that time. How about let's compare this interconnectedness with Greece. Greece is a small nation, so we'd think it'd be fairly easy to integrate all of the country together. You wouldn't have to build roads very far to get from one side of the country to the other. However, its mountainous geography makes this very difficult and also means that it's got limited agricultural growing opportunities as its arable land pushes up against its mountains and can't go any further. Thus, most of its national road network is built in the 1970s and onward, and much of this occurred in the 1990s and into the 21st century. So it's very, very recent that Greece has become highly interconnected. And this is because it's difficult to generate the capital that's needed to integrate the country effectively because there's just not that much arable land. Greece has the same problem that Brazil has, is that these mountains divide the country and it means it's hard to build economies of scale as each area is built over arable land and up to mountains and they can't link up together. However, it's not all one way. The geography does help Greece in some ways. And while the low-lying areas near the coast are relatively vulnerable, the mountains provide a good defensive positions. And this means that when it's been under foreign rule, 
the mountains have been a safe place for local Greeks to retreat to. And thus, under Ottoman rule, the interior mountains were often ruled by bandits instead of the state. However, these mountains also separate its cities, meaning there's precious little arable land to create a powerful economy. Thus, you can think about the, the ancient Greek city-states as an expression of this geography. You have local arable land for local cities with their own local character. And so you have the areas of Thessaly and the cities of Athens and Sparta. They're all different. They're all somewhat separated by geography, and, and they create their own character. They don't integrate into one kind of nation very easily. Thus, in ancient times, the Greeks have been able to use their terrain to defeat larger opponents, but they've rarely been able to use this to create a sustainably powerful state, except through conquering other lands. And this is only really evident with Alexander the Great, who was a brilliant genius tactician, backed up by the more extensive arable land of the northeast of Greece. This gave him the ability to launch and use superior tactics to defeat the opponents in modern-day Turkey and push further east around down to modern-day Egypt and across to modern-day Pakistan. However, if your region needs to rely on a genius tactician to bring states together and create a reasonably sized nation that can defend itself and have power on the international stage, that's not a very sustainable model as it's more of a once in a millennia that you're going to have someone like that born. The fall of Alexander the Great's empire effectively signaled the end of Greek independence for almost 2,000 years. Its western side was effectively conquered by the Roman Republic, and later the eastern side was taken by the Roman Empire over 2,000 years ago. After the fall of the Roman Empire, it was controlled by the Byzantine Empire, although later on there were some Macedonian and Greek dynasties. For the most part, it was still controlled by the Byzantine Empire, and then later by the Ottoman Empire. Only the intervention of French and British navies against the Ottoman Empire bought Greece its freedom in the 1830 London Protocol. Greece slowly clawed back some territory, but its fate was really at the whim of great powers deciding to help it. In the Greco-Turkish War of 1897, when Greece tried to regain control of the island of Crete, the Greeks were defeated soundly in battle. But the intervention of great powers in Europe, diplomatically on the side of the Greeks against the Ottoman Empire, resulted in Crete being given autonomy. Great powers in Europe were just using Greece as a thorn in the Ottoman Empire's side, and Greece completely relied upon them for support to keep its fledging nation alive. This approach made by Britain and other great powers towards Greece really has signaled its modern development as a state, one that relies on powerful external patrons to support it, such as the US during the Cold War, despite running a regime of colonels and a military dictatorship throughout much of the Cold War, the country was still seen as a bulwark against communism and supported by the US. After the end of the Cold War, the European powers brought Greece into the European Union and cheap capital flowing into Greece helped prop up its economy and keep it running as Greece would never be able to generate this level of capital based on its relatively weak economy. And the reason why it couldn't build this strong economy is because its geography held it back. It just doesn't have the arable land it needs to create a sustaining, large, powerful state. You can see now how geography has a large hand determining the fundamental nature of a state uh, for its e economy and therefore its foreign policy. For Greece, it has meant for almost the last 2,000 years, it has not been an independent political entity. For countries such as France and Germany, it has meant the underpinnings of a strong economy that has propelled them to great power status. And for the US, the greater Mississippi and the greater Midwest has greatly assisted in its development from a colonial outpost to a regional hegemon and global superpower.
Now it should be noted that geography isn't everything. It's an important factor and it can create limits in what you're capable of achieving in the foreign policy sphere, but it doesn't mean that you're predetermined completely. Um, it's more of like a, a strong influencing factor on what your country or your nation is capable of. For instance, if you look at Luxembourg, it's a very rich nation that has done very well out of the modern economy. But historically, it's still been quite small and it's been wedged between France on one side and Germany on the other. And you would think that this would be a terrible position to be in, geographically speaking, as you're pincered between two major powers. And it has been in the past when it's been invaded. But good foreign policy and good diplomacy can protect you in these types of situations where you go to each power and say, if the other side takes me over, that's they're going to get an advantage over you, so you should protect me. And you turn to the other side and say the exact same thing to them, and you have them balance against each other and protect your own interests. So there's ways around the geography, but it certainly does stack the odds in certain countries' favors and making it easier or harder to create a strong economy and, and more power on the international scene. That's it for this week's podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Shaw. You can find the Envoy website at www.envoyfpa.org. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram. As always, if you have any questions, comments, or requests, please send them to envoyuwa at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. We'll be back with more international relations news and foreign policy analysis real soon.